Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walk and lose, climb the fence, books and pens, I can tell that we are gonna be friends. Late in the 20th century, the science fiction genre, long considered a ghetto by many mainstream writers, advanced beyond its pulp roots to a new level of critical respect. Leading this new wave was a writer obsessed with the questions, what is real and who is human? He became a counterculture hero, partly thanks to a 1975 profile in Rolling Stone magazine. He is most well known as the author of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The novel, which became the movie Blade Runner, his name is Philip K. Dick. The Empire never ended. Track tape number 42. To fight the Empire, to be infected by its arrangement. This is paradox. Whoever defeats the segment of the Empire becomes the Empire. It proliferates like a virus, imposing its form on its enemies. Thereby, it becomes its enemy. But we don't know that for sure. Do you know how many times I've thought about giving up? How many times I would just quit trying? Trying to open this box? Trying to figure out a way back? Trying to stop Balthazar from his search? But every time I decided I would give up, I felt something give me a poke and remind me that there was still a chance. As long as we keep trying, there's always a chance. When I saw you come through that door of Balthazar's cabin, I knew that I had been right not to give up. So you can't give up, because if you do, then all my hope will have been for nothing. Good morning and welcome to another season of 42 Minutes. I'm Douglas Bowles, and I hope you had a great summer. It's time for us to resume our weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find more information about us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. But before we go behind the bookcase today and read from the gospel according to Philip, to begin a whole month of Vallis-themed shows, could you remind the good people what we do, Mr. William Morgan? Sure. Here at thethinkbook.com, we are a community of multimedia artists committed to an objective, non-ideological exploration of sync. Though the subjects we explore and study can be challenging, we do so with an open mind and a non-exclusionary respectfulness of the opinions and ideas of others. Here at 42 Minutes, we naturally discuss the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. We explore connection and meaning and its relationship to art as well as the intuitive artistic process. Since it's connection that we're interested in, and it's connection that we'll damn well celebrate. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. And today, that means spending 42 minutes with author and filmmaker Mark Steinsland. 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 Damn it. See, I always do that. We'll just erase that one and say it right there. (laughs) (laughs) He is responsible for the 2001 film, The Gospel of According to Philip K. Dick, as well as the recent book, Behind the Bookcase, published by... Delacourt Press, an imprint of a Random House Kids. He is the proprietor of Changshao Trading Company, and we're very pleased to be meeting with him today. Hello and welcome. Thank you, sir. Thanks for, ha- yeah, thanks for having me. How, how are you doing today? <laughs> doing very well, as a matter of fact. Doing very well. Excellent. So, um, how did you get into Philip K. Dick? Well, I guess... Like most people, my uh, original exposure to Philip K. Dick was via Blade Runner. Uh, I was, you know, very. I've always been into film since I uh, being very young, and that was a particularly interesting summer. You remember Blade Runner came out, John Carpenter's The Thing was out. It was uh, E.T. There was a lot of stuff going on, and uh, and wow. Blade Runner was a very interesting film, and uh, led me to the to his writing. 
And, uh, of course, the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, is very, very different from what they ultimately made into the film Blade Runner. And a lot of different ideas are contained in the novel. And that's the way his fiction is, is it's just absolutely loaded with ideas. And I became very interested in that. And then uh, at one point I had purchased, um, of course, I was getting all these books, uh, secondhand paperbacks and so forth from these bookstores. And uh, one of the editions of a novel of his, Time Out of Joint, had this description in the back of it, an essay in the back of it that was about his religious experience. And uh, particularly, you know, the pink beam going off uh, and and that leading to him writing the exegesis and, you know, all these other kinds of things. And I was so taken aback by that. It was such a kind of a shocking revelation to me that this artist on the one hand who had produced these, you know, really interesting science fiction works had this entire other thing going on. And of course that other thing was directly informing the, the other science, the science fiction that he was writing. And uh, I really became fascinated by that stuff, maybe even more so than the science fiction. And so I started reading uh, some of the parts of the exegesis had been published at that time and uh, started really looking into that and uh, getting very interested in that. And then I thought that would be a really interesting kind of approach to the man is to try to recreate for people the experience that I had had which was, hey, did you know the guy who wrote Blade Runner had this intense religious experience? And at the time, I was working in uh, video distribution, selling movies to video stores. And one of my best customers, I was talking to him about Philip K. Dick and my fascination and so on. And one of my one of my best customers said, well, you know, one of my customers was like one of Phil, Phil's best friends. And I took that sort of... Uh, a, uh, an open door and pursued that. And, and that is uh, Miriam, who's in the film, uh, was, I was led to by this customer of mine. And that kind of inspired me to contact her and then to, um, you know, to uh, contact other people and so forth. And, and the film was built from there. One of the things that I'm realizing lately is that oftentimes his his uh writing is more uh it's thinly fictionalized versions of his own life especially the stuff towards the end of his life was miriam based did she show up in any of his later works uh well yeah i mean she was i i think that she was really in a lot of stuff as, as and as she says in the film that um you know phil had this idea about uh, sort of a medieval idea about love where you could be completely in love with somebody uh, and and not have a sexual relationship with them, but still be as intensely in love with them as if you were having a sexual relationship with them. And uh, And so, you know, this was something that he obsessed a lot about, apparently, in his uh, in his life with a variety of different people. So she wasn't one of the uh, so-called dark-haired girls, but she still was, you know, one who uh who he was in love with and uh and confessed that to her frequently. And so and when you say, you know, that you think uh that Phil's writing was um thinly veiled autobiographical kinds of stuff. Uh, honestly, I think that's true of any writer, any writer worth anything, frankly. Uh, I think that's really what part of what a writer's job is to do. And I think writers who just sort of make up things that really don't have any relationship to themselves, I feel like that shows. And I, I don't consider that the same at the same level, if you will, 
as what Phil was doing, which I think was very intensely exploring himself and doing it in this way. It seems to me that's one of the that's one of the great functions of fiction is is the ability to do that. All right. So, do you have a favorite Philip K. Dick work, and then do you which one do you think is the masterpiece? <laughs> um. Oh, that's a tough question. You know, it's funny because uh, I, I would have to say, mm, well, it's interesting because some of some of the some of the books, like *Man in the High Castle*, which, frankly, I found not to be too terribly interesting, except for that unbelievable ending. And when you get to that ending, it's like everything else about what the book was or wasn't is is completely wiped out by how incredible that ending was. And of course, this is kind of famous writer advice is you, you got to come up with a great beginning. You got to come up with a great ending and got to get them as close together as possible. Um, and, <laughs> and then also the ending is the thing, you know, Robert Town famously says about, about screenwriting that the ending is the thing. That's what audiences leave the theater with. And uh, that's what they're going to think about. That's what they're going to talk about. And uh, and so, again, something like Man in the High Castle, great ending, but overall, uh, well, <laughs> I wasn't going to go that far. <laughs> um, I, don't get me but, wrong. I love K. Dick, but some of, that's like a hard one. Yeah, kind of a hard yeah. one to get through. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, so where I was headed was um, I – I just have this in my mind, three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch just kind of burns in a way that uh, many of the others don't. And I think part of that has to do perhaps with, um, with his own assessment of that book, which I included in my film where he says that he will sometimes reread the book and think, it's an absolute masterpiece. It's a work of genius. And other times he'll reread the book and think it's a total pile of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, you know, that's, that's another truth of the artistic life. And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, I mean, again, it just, it's going to come to personal taste and that's one that for me really is, um, is pretty remarkable. I think also um, Vallis uh, is as insane as that is. That's also part of the appeal. Uh, I love the idea of really, I mean, it's kind of cliche to say working without a net, but clearly doing something that has absolutely no regard for anything other than being true to the artistic process. And that book uh, also does that in a very unique way. And I remember being very shocked by, uh, by a number of parts of that book. This is a random question, but what do you think of Radio Free, I think it's pronounced Albermuth. Albermuth? Uh, um, in comparison to Vallis, I mean, how do you compare the two? Yeah, um... I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't have the same kind of sticking power for me, for whatever reason. Um, and uh, I understand that they made a film out of that not right. too long ago, which I have not seen, uh, unfortunately. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's you know, again, it's uh, some of them have more sticking power, and and some don't. And I think that's. It's Again, definitely I mean, darker than Dallas, but I mean it's basically yeah. the same story. So, yeah, yeah. It's more of the MK Ultra side of. The- well, so that's that's what's interesting. So towards the end of his life, he was kind of consumed as. In your film, is it Paul Williams? Yes. You know, he was he was the the man who wrote the Rolling Stone article that kind of reinvigorated his career, or maybe just made him. Uh, more widely known to a larger scale audience, but he he said in the film that towards the end of his life it was that experience in 1974 that really towards the end of his life he just couldn't he needed to process that and understand that and it seems like that's what 
the works that he did publish were about. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's what any religious experience does to a person if it's true. And was it also that, I mean, realizing that he had this mystical experience that kind of set you on your journey to, to go behind the bookcase, as it were, to understand, you know, what, what this guy was doing? Uh, how do you mean exactly? Well, so that's the fascinating thing to me is that – so when I experience Philip K. Dick, it's just science fiction. And mm-hmm. so I read Vallis, I think, was the first work that I read. I mean I'd, I'd seen the, the different film versions that came out, but I didn't realize that was Philip K. Dick until much later. And so Vallis to me struck me as a really, really interesting psychological work of fiction where he's playing with – you know, uh, this this character going through this strange experience, and he, you read it both psychologically, like he's constructed all this apparatus to understand the situation mm-hmm. that could be true or could be crazy. And you can, you know, it, it just seemed brilliant to me because you could read it both ways. But then I had no idea that that was, he was trying to understand himself. Right. And then the deeper you get into that story, you realize that a lot of these are real people and these are real events. Right. And and I think, you know, now we sort of, we easily slip into one of Phil's favorite questions, what is real? And, and the question about when you, you, it sounds to me like you're kind of dividing parts of the book for this is a real person, but this may have not been a real event and, and so on. And I think, you know, one of the things for me is that the best science fiction is is the most true uh, in the sense that uh, the best fiction is really about exploring the truth of who we are and where we are and when we are and why we are, all those kinds of questions. And I, I mean, that maybe I don't mean to sound trite about it, but but really that to me is the function that there are things that you can say and do in fiction that are far more true than you might say in some kind of political speech, for instance. Um, So I think that, you know, whether or not you want to speculate as people have done that probably what Phil had was a stroke and that that's what the pink beam of light was or, he was high on drugs and, you know, that's what happened. I mean, you can speculate all you want. The man believed what, you know, he, he believed that something had happened to him and he spent his, the rest of his life, as you mentioned, he spent the rest of his life trying to understand that as best he could. I mean, isn't that really where we all are? I think all of us, whether or not a pink beam of light has gone off in our head, nonetheless, all of us are here now. And there's a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> and um, that's if you're doing the work that you should be doing, that I think you should be doing, then you're thinking about that. You're taking it seriously. Uh, you are exploring that and, yes, trying to understand that. And so for me, that's part of what makes Phil K. Dick such an incredibly great writer is his ability to get at reality in these very unique ways. And um, there, there's a part of, there's a part in Ballas, you know, where he reveals that he is this character, where he just comes out and says, look, I'm this guy, and I'm doing this because I'm trying to get this perspective. And it's like, it, it's such a shock to you as you're reading it and it's the same kind of effect to me, for me personally, that uh, the Hemingway short story, The Killers, had on me, where, you know, here's this guy at the end of that story in his room, on his bed, knowing that he can't leave. And it's like the, the revelation of what the truth of what Hemingway is getting at about where some of us are is is at this incredible level that's that's so far beyond if he just tried to explain it to you, you know. And again, I think that's the same thing of what is going on in, in the best fiction and, and, of course, in the best of Philip K. Dick. So 
I sort of struggle with the idea of trying to separate the quote-unquote reality from fiction, especially in Philip K. Dick's work. I think at one level, it's all reality, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. We play with that idea. Now, in fact, I got I got something that I'm just going to toss an idea out there and see how you respond to it. Because um, I was reading... I was reading uh, We Can Remember It For You for Wholesale, I think is what it's called. You know, yeah. Phil, Phil always had these incredibly long titles. But, right. Uh, um, so I'm reading it, and of course it's a short story, and I think when everybody knows the true or the total recall like theme of that mm-hmm. was the original story, that's where that, that idea came from. So right. like, just to be pop relevant we'll say you know the part where arnold realizes that he's he's in the chair and he realizes that he's a special agent and he starts going crazy when it happens in the book it's with sodium pentothal mm-hmm. and, it was, and i if i if i got my math correct that story came out 10 years before phil's event mm-hmm. so my theory is that he was writing about the event before the event ever happened. Like he, that's all his stories are about is the event. Well, yeah. I, I, I mean, um, I, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, I think, <laughs> I think that, that, uh, part of being a prophet is not being aware of the fact that you are a prophet and that's why you deserve to be a prophet. Do <laughs> you understand what I mean? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and funny. and so then you have to struggle with that because then when you realize that maybe you are and then that's when trouble starts to happen. Oh, I'm a prophet. And you can easily go off on the wrong tack. And, you know, the reality, one, one of the other things that, that uh, I admire so much about Philip K. Dick is that, you know, if you're reading some of the stuff about around kind of the Hollywood deals of, of Blade Runner and so on, that they wanted him to write the novelization of the screenplay of his own book. And they wanted to pay him, <laughs> you know, some outrageous six-figure amount of money to do it and he said i'm not going to do that my book is my book i'm not going to you know do this other thing i want to write this other book which i I believe was the transmigration of timothy archer which of course is about bishop pike who i actually have a personal connection to and um which was another kind of one of these revelatory moments for me that made me even more interested in philip k dick but the fact is that he turned down that because he, he wanted to do this other thing because he recognized that that's what he really needed to do. And that's when you, when you are at that level where, you know, I, I mean, we know about the struggles that he had as a young writer. Uh, we know that he wasn't certainly, you know, some totally wealthy individual uh, for his whole career. And I know enough quote unquote real writers to know that most of them aren't. And, um, you know, so, uh, the fact that he could be true to the prophecy, so to speak, at that level, with no regard for himself, but regard for the work, you know, that's, that's real. There's a joke in Vallis where the narrator says, I, I, I'm pretty sure that fat is, is a Buddha. But I'm not going to tell him because if he can't figure that for himself, then, you know, he has no business being the Buddha. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But then at the same time, you know, he, he, we're, he's analyzing it's we have two characters. So he it's, it's so great. And that's what I love about Ballas is where it's it's the whole being. But he's he's looking at it from different points of view. And that's how, you know, it's two characters. And it's so shocking when when the two characters disappear, and you know it's like the reveal where he takes off and says, "No, this is just it's just me." Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that true of all of us? I mean, I mean, I think everybody is is two characters at least, and probably more. And uh, one of 
our great tasks is to is to reconcile all those different things. You know, the things that we that we would do uh, that we would never want somebody else to do, yet we're okay with doing them. Uh, you know, I mean, that's again, that's that's part of what of what it is to be human. And of course, that's one of Phil's other favorite questions: is what does it mean to be human? What is human? Well, speaking of multiple characters, uh, tell us a little bit about Sarah and Balthazar. <laughs> Are these? Um, <laughs> where did these? Where did these folks come from? <laughs> uh, well, um, it was kind of a behind the bookcase originated from a couple of different sources. Um, one is that uh, about eight years ago or so, um, I got a job teaching in Pennsylvania, and my family, we moved from California to Pennsylvania, and we moved into a house that uh, had these fascinating bookcases that came out from the wall and uh, were actually access to the crawl space in the eaves because um, of the kind of house it was in this Cape Cod roof. And and so, you know, my kids were very young at the time, and, uh, of course, this was terribly exciting to them, you know, this secret kind of secret passage. And we, uh, while we were back there, we, you know, we did a a trip one summer and sort of drove a motorhome around a lot of different locations. And, and we got to go to the house of the seven gables um, and, you know, see another house with secret passages in it and so forth. And the kids you know, really loved that. So this sort of just kind of stuck in my brain. And the other thing is that uh, in addition to being a, a writer and a filmmaker, uh, and I also, do some music and I also do some different kinds of art. And one of the things that I do in my art is I do um, ink drawings. I just do a black ink with a brush uh, on white paper and just kind of do, you know, uh, different kinds of portraits and so on. And so at one point I was just sort of drawing a bunch of different characters and I had no idea who they were, what they were, anything, but the more that they started to kind of gather and I, I would finish them and I, and I would put them up and another one would come out and another one would come out and so on. And then I began to realize that these were the characters who lived behind the bookcase. And so it was all of those characters. It was lefty, you know, this hand with the eye, uh, it was Balthazar, it was Mr. Inc. Um, you know, again, it was all of these different things that I had drawn in, uh, in black ink. And, and so then I began to think about, uh, what would happen if my daughter went behind the bookcase and met these characters. And so, um, you know, it was just something that I started to, to write that way. And I, I, the, the best stuff that I, for me personally, anyway, the best stuff that I have written has, uh, has always been written without an outline. And I just sort of see where it goes. And if it goes somewhere, that's great. And if it doesn't, then, you know, it, it doesn't, it becomes a fragment that maybe I return to later. And so this particular work, uh, you know, just ended up kind of, continuing along its way so to speak it's it's a wonderful world i really enjoyed spending time there and i uh will we get to go back to penumbra or scotopia no probably not um the uh you know of course it was left open in a certain sense to suggest that that really wasn't i mean it wasn't it seems like sort of an obvious kind of way to do it. Oh, you got to leave it open for the sequel because, you know, these series are so popular. And that wasn't really my thinking when that ending came up originally. It was, it was after I wrote the ending, I was like, oh, well, that's sort of interesting. It 
leaves it open for a sequel, doesn't it? It kind of does. It, yeah, and it, but it really wasn't my intention. And I know probably some people say, oh, you know, that's, you know, come on. You did that on purpose. Um, but the fact is that <laughs> I really felt like that was what happened in the story. That is that, um, that is the, the result of what the characters were doing. And in a certain sense, you know, again, talking about the quote unquote reality of something for a person in their life, that that's kind of what happens for us too. You know, that if we can do what they did, then that's what we'll have. You know, we'll have another chance as well. And that's what mistakes are about. You know, mistakes are about you can have the right attitude or you can have the wrong attitude. You know, the wrong attitude is, uh, oh, man, <laughs> that's terrible. I'm, I'm really, I'm lousy and uh, I don't want to do that again, so I'm never going to try and blah, blah, blah. Or, obviously, the other side of it, which is, well, that was unfortunate, but let's see what we can take from that and, and go forward with it and um, you know, do something different next time. And, and so that's, that was a big part of that particular ending for me. Well, one of the things that I really appreciated was that at, at various times, hope was kind of like this, this virus that people were passing around where one person had it and they passed it on to the next person, but then they themselves might lose hope but the other person at least was carrying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, again, that's uh, that's reality as well. You know, you you can't, I mean, for whatever you do or for whatever you inspire in somebody else, I think frequently about something like cancer and and the different reactions that two people might have to it. That the one person gets it, and for them, it changes their life. It sends them into the spiral of depression, and eventually they decide they can't do it anymore, and perhaps they commit suicide. And the other person, it changes their life, and it becomes an inspiration, and it becomes a battle, and it becomes something that they go out and inspire other people to, you know, to do, to fight against. And maybe they die, but what they pass on to other people, it's the same event, and it's and it's different people, but it's not the different people. It's the different reaction. It's the different attitude. It's what you do with that event. And, and so I think that that's, you know, that's just another truth, if you will, uh, about something like hope that, yeah, maybe I inspire hope in another person, but maybe another person is, is not ready to, to have something like that or to accept something like that. And so, you know, they're, it's not going to work for them, and that's just the way. That's just the way things are. I've got a really specific question about intentionality. So, uh, when Sarah made it back from Scotopia at one point in time, she looked at the clock and it said it was two three seven. Yes. Was that a number that you just plucked out of the air, or were you? Were you oh no, absolutely not. The Shining is a very important <laughs> work for me. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and that's one of the more obvious intentionalities. I mean, if if you know, if you, uh, I hope you didn't miss the fact that it, it's called the Black Iron Prison. Of course, um, <laughs> for for a reason. Right. Um, and uh, and there are lots of other things that are that are like that, and it's it's not meant to be. Um, it's not meant to be silly. It's not meant to be trite. It's not meant to be flippant. Uh, it really is intended, uh, and it's not meant to really push you out of what uh, you're experiencing, but rather it's meant to draw you further in. And, um, and so that connection, uh, to the Black Iron Prison or that connection to 237 or the connection to the Green Desert, uh, which is you know one of my favorite Tangerine Dream albums, um, and for a number of reasons, and for a number of personal reasons. So there are those things that are there for me 
And I think that's something that I've learned from some of my favorite artists is that the best work is something you return to again and again and again and experience in a new way each time you come back to it. And and that's the real test for me of the power of a work of art is how repeatable is it? And if it's something that I watch or read and, and I'm done with it, then that's not really as powerful to me as something that 10 years later I'm still trying to share with people and I'm still sharing with myself, you know, and still finding new things about. So... One of the strange Vallis resonances is the fact that when they refer to Philip K. Dick's um, event, they call it the 2374 event. Right. That's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why. I mean, because it was February, March of 74. Right, right, right. And so they call it the 2374. And it's just (laughs) one of those things that always kind of makes my head explode a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I uh, frankly, I think life is a metaphor. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it, it is, if you will, it is the novel that each of our souls is reading and writing. Well, so Robert Anton Wilson is in your film. What was that like to to meet him? Uh, that was pretty interesting. Um, and are you and, a fan uh, of his work? Because, you know, on on par with what we're into and enjoy, Philip K. Yeah. Dick and Robert Anton Wilson really speak a similar language. They do, I think, in very different ways. And it was something I'd never really gotten into uh, to all of his stuff. I'd tried sometimes, and it just, it, you know, for whatever reason, it just didn't work for me in quite the same way. But uh, at the same time, I recognized how important he was to what I was talking about in the film, what I was exploring in the film, which is, you know, the reason that I needed to speak with him. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a, he was a fascinating character, a very interesting character. And, um, you know, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. I mean, making the film was, was a lot of fun. Uh, Paul Williams was, uh, was incredibly fascinating and uh and again it was just it was a lot of fun to to do what i had wanted to do which was talk to people about this experience that Phil K Dick had had and you know hopefully again kind of create that feeling for other people well so we're winding down but you had mentioned that you had a a personal resonance or synchronicity with Bishop Pike, could you speak? No, a personal connection. I mean, a a direct personal connection. My father was an Episcopalian minister, and uh, Bishop Pike was uh, used to come to our house for dinner, and uh, he was. My father was invited to uh, Grace Cathedral in San Francisco uh, by Bishop Pike to give a guest sermon uh, during Easter season. Bishop Pike did this as a regular thing uh, during Easter season. And, you know, if you know the story of of Bishop Pike, which is that uh, his son committed suicide and he then, by Phil Dick, was introduced to a psychic who claimed that they could contact the dead son, um, which kind of sent Bishop Pike into into his own sort of end of life uh, religious experience or you know, mystical experience spiral. Unfortunately for him, uh, it ended, you know, with him saying all kinds of things that uh, he believed that the Bible was wrong about, and that he had this insight that was the truth, and that he then went to uh, Israel to search for the documents that he felt was going to prove uh, what his what he was saying. Uh, he was one of the last heresy trials, uh, you know, in in uh, church history for the things that he said, and uh, and then died in the desert. And I didn't know any of that. Uh, I was too young. My father died when I was six years old, and of course this was all you know late 60s, early 70s, and so on. 
And uh, however, we used to watch regularly the uh, the show that Leonard Nimoy narrated called In Search Of. And one Sunday afternoon, it was In Search Of Bishop Pike. And my <laughs> mother said, what? <laughs> and suddenly, you know, it was revealed, yeah, this guy used to come to our house all the time. And of course, as young as I was at the time, that was fascinating to me. Wow, you know, this, I, I sort of, this guy was in my presence. And, and so it was then interesting to discover later that here, Phil Dick and Bishop Pike had this connection and that that's the transmigration of Timothy Archer is Phil's book about Jim. Uh, you know, that's who he is. That's Archer is why he named him Archer is because his last name was Pike. So. And so are you working on anything these days that we can look forward to? Uh, I, I am um, uh, writing something now, um, but unfortunately it's my personal artistic policy to, to not discuss anything uh, only because uh, it tends to it tends to have a strange destructive effect on on the work um, and I don't know it's just I, I guess it's something for me for me personally that I've had a lot of halfway finished things that have been talked about or shown to other people that it's almost as if somehow that uh, completes what it was supposed to do before it's really finished. And then it just kind of, I don't know. So <laughs> I don't like the sentence. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I mean, I'm always working on something and, and uh, you know, we'll see uh, where where it goes and, and how it comes out. Okay, well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. You've been listening to Mark Steensland. Did I say it right that time? Yes. Awesome, on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Steensland can be found on his website, behindthebookcase.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you like the podcast, please support it by becoming a donor. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website, or each episode on the website, and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much, and as long as you keep trying, there's always a chance.
Thank you, Mark. That was a lot of fun. Hey, cool. I'm good. I hope that uh, hope that worked for you. I think it was great. At the very end, you were talking about your practice on keeping things secret. Have you ever read The Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu? Uh, A little bit, not all the way through. Why do you say that? Because he has something in there. You know, it's always like these, you know, the the journey of a thousand miles starts this. Single step. He disappeared, didn't he? What's that? I said he disappeared. He did. That that was awesome. (laughs) The journey of a thousand miles begins with... (laughs) And I guess that's where he went. He went on his journey. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, so do you know what he was going for? (laughs) I don't. I don't have any idea. (laughs) I hope he was abducted. (laughs) (laughs) That would be... (laughs) That would be something. Yes, it would be. Maybe he slipped back into uh, the Empire. <laughs> the Empire never ended. Listening, I yeah. loved to listen to Valis because the, the reader that they have that has read yeah. is so good for Phil K. Yeah. Dick books. Yeah. Yeah. It's one yeah. that definitely well, is giving for me over the years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, and, and I'm kind of sorry because you had that in the introduction and I was sort of hoping we would talk about that a little bit because that is one of the most fascinating ideas. It, you know, you say, well, that's ridiculous. No, it's not. I, I think it's absolutely accurate to say that what was is what is now. I, come on. You know, take a look around. <laughs> we are still living in the exact same kind of structure as what we see when we look in history. And, uh, you know, I often say to people that it it is an illusion. Progress is an illusion. Uh, Things are are really the same, and it's just going to kind of keep repeating on this cycle until it finally burns out. But, uh, yeah, anyway. Well, I'm sorry he disappeared. He can't finish telling me what he wanted to tell me, but Maybe you can send me an email. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anything else? No, I was just you. It was funny because you were talking about time, and and it seems like that's one of the things I'm discovering is that a lot of the philosophical things that Philip K. Dick arrives at ends up becoming things that become scientifically known later on it seems like with information theory and chaos theory and it just seems like he really was into parts of reality that that was way way ahead of everyone else oh absolutely I I mean I believe that again it goes back to to the idea about um, the nature of prophecy and so forth I mean I think um, I think if you look back in in history at things that were written by other people and other cultures and other, I mean, you know, you just think about how did they do that? How did they realize that? Well, just because they're in touch with the truth in a way that other people were not. Um, you know, so I, when we went to, my wife and I went to Chichen uh, Itza a number of years ago, and to, to hear this incredible story of the pyramid that has the snake on the side of the steps that on one day of each year the way the sun shines on it the shadow of the snake appears to be moving into the ground you know i mean what does it take to have that kind of understanding of what's going on around you to create that particular expression of it you know that is that is a level of of understanding that i think is is beyond probably you know still beyond 99 percent of culture and you know unfortunately i think we lost a lot of respect for that kind of thinking and yeah but you know i suppose really it's no different from any other time right (laughs) nope did you make it back will yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... Oh, that was so awesome. We were just talking about how awesome that was. The journey of a thousand miles begins with... 
Oh, uh, I said I hope, I hope he was abducted. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. You just you disappeared right mid sentence, and oh, and then we started laughing. And, and like I said, I hope he was abducted. But um, <laughs> no, apparently you're back. Yeah, so what was your point? It. I'm curious. What what is it that Lao Tzu oh, says that's related to the the secret of art? He said he said always do your work in secret. Only show yeah, others yeah. the result. Ah, interesting. Well, there you go. So, and I always you know, again, one and, of those like fortune cookie sayings that stuck in my head so much. It's like because it has a lot to do with what you were saying. It almost destroys the integrity, or people give their opinions yeah. about the work, and everything changes. Right, right, right. And you know, it took me a long time to get to that point. Um, this uh, this thing that uh, that I'm doing now is the first thing that I've really been. 100% true to in that way. I mean, you know, in, in, a, in a unique way, um, where there isn't even awareness uh, in most cases. So, uh, but again, you know, that's kind of what you just said, though, goes back to what I was saying, which is here is somebody from a different time in a different place who had access to the same truth. And, and I think, you know, truth doesn't change. Uh, no matter what pilot says. So, right. um, yeah. Well, that's something else you said that I just want to—I just want to say it before we leave. Right, we got to let you go off and have your day. But there was yeah. something else when you were talking about prophets and stuff. It's funny. There's a there's a there's a verse in the Bible that's always funny to me when Jesus goes to the other like the the his disciples and he's like, so what are the people saying about me? And they're saying, Lord, you could be this or you could be that or you could be this. Well, what do you think I am? He's like, well, we think you're the Son of God. And it's, I'm paraphrasing, yeah. of course, but Jesus is like, hey, hey, guys, keep that to yourselves, would you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't tell anybody. Because, uh, you know, and my honest feeling is, is because Jesus knows human psychology so well that he knows that by telling them that, they will tell people even more fervently exactly what they need to know. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to whatever yeah. it is you're working on. All right. Thanks a lot. You bet. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.